millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. At the end of this month, on October 27th and 28th, a British court will hear an appeal from the United States, which will argue that a judge's decision to block the U.S. from extraditing Julian Assange was wrong and should be overturned. Assange, who was born in Australia, has been charged by the U.S. with publishing documents provided to him by whistleblower Chelsea Manning that exposed evidence of U.S. war crimes. The judge had ruled that if Assange was extradited, there was a significant chance that he would commit suicide in U.S. custody, making his extradition a violation of human rights. Since then, a key witness in the U.S. indictment, Sigi Thudarsson of Iceland, has recanted his testimony and been arrested. In a bombshell report by Yahoo News, written by Zach Dorfman, Sean Naylor, and Michael Isakoff, revealed that senior U.S. officials, up to and including the president and CIA director Mike Pompeo, plotted to kidnap Assange, floated assassinating him, and otherwise told CIA operatives to get creative in their war on WikiLeaks. Assange had been holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, and under U.S. pressure, the Ecuadorians eventually evicted him into British custody, where he remains, held in a violent prison called Belmarsh, where he is said to be wasting away physically and psychically. Julian Assange is being held in Belmarsh prison, which some have called Britain's Guantanamo. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture has visited Julian Assange in prison. He says the past 10 years have effectively been psychological torture. Learning that the country seeking his extradition plotted his kidnapping and even assassination would seem to be a central factor in making the case that Assange's safety in the U.S. cannot in any way be guaranteed. President Joe Biden has previously said that Assange is closer to a, quote, high-tech terrorist than to Daniel Ellsberg. Mitch McConnell says he's a high-tech terrorist. Others say this is akin to the Pentagon Papers. Where do you come from? I would argue that it's closer to being a high-tech terrorist than the, than the Pentagon Papers. And Trump who floated his assassination, is plotting his own comeback to the White House. We'll be joined in a moment by Yahoo News reporter Michael Isakoff, who is also having a bit of a pop culture star turn as a fictionalized version of himself is being featured in an ongoing drama on FX, the third season of their show, American Crime Story. This one follows the story of the investigation into Bill Clinton that resulted in his impeachment. There's a woman I'm very close to. In the midst of an affair with the President of the United States. How do I know it's true? I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Isakoff played a central role in that drama, breaking significant stories on it along the way, eventually becoming embroiled in it himself. Michael Isakoff, who's in Doha, Qatar for a conference, joins us now. Michael Iskoff, welcome to Deconstructed. Uh, good to be with you. No, thanks. Thanks for doing this and doing it from steamy Doha. It is steamy, yes. And very late at night for you. So you've been breaking big stories, as viewers of FX know, for 30 
plus years now, uh, <laughs> but I wanted to talk to you about your most recent big scoop. This is of the conversations in the Oval Office about kidnapping or perhaps even assassinating Julian Assange. So I'm actually curious, WikiLeaks still exists. WikiLeaks still does journalism, still publishes documents. Do you have any indication that the policy has changed? I mean, obviously, they now have captured Assange himself and are trying to extradite him over to the United States. But is WikiLeaks still considered by the United States? What you what did they call it? A non-state hostile? Well, Pompeo called it a... Non-state hostile intelligence service. It was early 2017, and it was Pompeo's first public remarks as CIA director. And I remember being in the audience that day and listening to him, and he was going on and on about WikiLeaks, and he used this catchy line about non-state hostile intelligence service. And I thought it was a little odd that he was spending so much time talking about WikiLeaks of all the threats that to the country that he had to worry about. And I assumed that the line was kind of a, you know, a clever line that his speechwriters came up with uh, to sort of, you know, get a get some headlines. But as we reported in the piece, it was really much more than that. In effect, he was making public an internal designation that the CIA had made that opened the door for it to do all sorts of aggressive measures targeting WikiLeaks as a hostile intelligence service that it likely otherwise would not have been able to do without a presidential finding and a briefing of uh, the intelligence committees on the Hill. Now, to understand the context, there was a reason that Pompeo was doing this, and that was he was deeply embarrassed and infuriated mm-hmm. by the Vault 7 leak. WikiLeaks saying that this is its largest ever publication of confidential documents about the CIA ever. It's codenamed Vault 7. WikiLeaks had just recently started to publish these documents describing the CIA's offensive cyber hacking capabilities. This is a cache of 8,761 documents and files, which essentially made up the CIA's cyber warfare intelligence playbook, all of it. You know, for Pompeo, you know, it's now on his watch, it's his agency, and, you know, out for revenge. And that's what spurred this extraordinary series of events that unfolded internally within the Trump White House you know, over the rest of that year in which, you know, Pompeo was coming up with all sorts of aggressive uh, measures. The federal criminal investigation is now being opened into WikiLeaks publication of what's being called Vault 7. Some of the Trump White House lawyers were extremely nervous. And the, the revenge continues. There's there's now this appeal of the rejection of the extradition that, that the U.S. Is, is appealing it. There'll be a hearing soon. Have you gotten any indication of what the impact of your reporting has been on the attempt to extradite Assange? Just as a layperson, you think that if you're now going through legal a legal process to try to obtain custody of this person, and it emerges that you recently contemplated assassinating and kidnapping them, that that would undermine your case somewhat. Yeah. Uh, but that, I might be naive yeah. in that. <laughs> well, a couple things. First of all, it's worth noting that this is the Biden mm-hmm. administration, Justice Department, that is pursuing the extradition. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's an important point 
to keep in mind the aggressive measures and the internal debate we wrote about took place during the Trump era inside the Trump administration. Although you did report you did report that some of the agency ideas about what to do about Assange had predated Pompeo. Yeah, I mean there were there was an evolution in thinking about WikiLeaks. Some of it driven by the events of 2016 mm-hmm. and Assange's publication of the Russian purloined DNC emails, which obviously what the Russians had done in 2016 was a major focus of the intelligence community during that time, trying to figure out what the Russians were up to, what their connections were, how they got what they got, how they got it to WikiLeaks uh, and all of that. So that sort of sharpened the focus on WikiLeaks and Assange. The idea of indicting Assange had been out there for, you mm-hmm. know, ever since 2010, mm-hmm. right? When he started publishing the Afghan and Iraq war logs and, and the State Department cables. And there was, you know, enormous frustration within the government about that at the time. Hillary Clinton was incensed. It was State Department cables. It was her State Department that had been embarrassed. This disclosure is not just an attack on America's foreign policy interests. It is an attack on the international community. Pompeo is interesting because I remember being at the Aspen Security Conference in 2017, and when the issue of what the Russians had done, he was, you know, pretty dismissive. He, he, like everybody else in the government, accepted the findings that the Russians did what they did. That was not a matter of dispute. But he was downplaying it. Oh, yeah, the Russians, they interfere in elections. Yeah, they interfered in the election just like they did the previous election and the election before that, Mm -hmm. suggesting it was all pretty business as usual, which was not true. You know, what they did in 2016 was a much more significant, you know, attack on American democracy to an attempt to influence an election. Right. People point to this small six-figure ad buy that they did on Facebook. But to me, the much more influential move was the, was the emails because that generated ten, tens of millions of dollars worth of free media. Of course. Of course. And by the way, I mean, but, I, but you know, the ad buys on Facebook, there's a force multiplier effect that we've learned from, for inflammatory content on Facebook. And they were blasting away with inflammatory content that, that you know, also had an impact. But you're right. I mean, it was the, the emails and the Podesta emails that clearly got a lot of attention. But anyway, Pompeo was not especially exercised about WikiLeaks being used by the Russians in 2016. But once the Vault 7 leak took place, now it was his agency on his watch, much like the State Department cables was on Hillary Clinton's agency and on her watch. So he, like she, took it personally. He proposed a lot of really aggressive measures, most of which, you know, the ones that got the most attention were never carried out, a snatch operation. That was the sort of thing that really set off alarms among the Trump lawyers. There was talk of assassination, but as we, I hope, made clear, I'm pretty sure we made clear in the story, that never got very far. Um, uh, You know, there's accounts of Trump, you know, raising the question about it, but Trump's, you know, says all sorts of 
said all sorts of stupid things. Right. Why don't we nu- why don't we nuke a hurricane? Yeah, in in, in the Oval Office that that doesn't translate to policy. It is fascinating to think about him contemplating the assassination of the guy that helped get him elected. It does speak to Trump's level of loyalty, right? And in an interesting way. I I know, but but. You know, if you read all the way through our story, there's a quote, a new quote from Trump, which we got for the story, uh, in which Trump denies he ever, you know, raised the question about assassination and then says, I think Julian Assange is being treated very badly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so he's reverted to the I love WikiLeaks Trump of the 2016 campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, at the end of the day, you know, in Trump's mind, it's all about him. And yes, you're right. I think he maintains a soft spot for Julian Assange for the help that he gave him in the campaign. Right. Not so um, soft they didn't float killing him, but but right. still a soft spot. So it's complicated <laughs> yeah, for yeah. Trump. But anyway, the, but the upcoming hearing will be interesting because we will see, I mean, the Assange lawyers, uh, you know, I feel confident are going to raise this. The immediate issue for those of your listeners who haven't followed it closely is, uh, you know, Assange has been indicted. He's in the UK. The Justice Department has asked the Brits to extradite him so he could face trial. The British judge who heard the case denied the extradition request on the grounds that Assange would be at serious risk of suicide if he were to be taken to a U.S. prison. And so, you know, technically, the appeal is about that ruling. But I think we can expect the Assange lawyers to bring up the extreme measures that the CIA was talking about, this could this would clearly give Assange concern to be returned to a country whose government had high-level officials who were trying to do these sorts of things to him. Sure. It wouldn't be hard at all to argue that it would bear on your mental state knowing that yeah. the, gov- the government that you're being sent to right. you know, contemplated kidnapping you or worse. Yeah. I would think. So it'll be really interesting. I have no idea how the British court will handle these questions. The most interesting thing I'll be looking for is what does the Justice Department lawyer say about any of this, if anything, if the judges choose to question the Justice Department lawyer about what we reported in our story. And I, let me just mention, this was a collaborative effort I did with two of my colleagues, uh, Zach Dorfman and uh, Sean Naylor, uh, and they uh, did a lot of this reporting as well. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So I also wanted to ask you about, I don't know what the transition is from, from Trump to Monica Lewinsky, uh, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you about your, your recent uh, star turn or the, or your, yeah. your facsimile yeah. star turn. <laughs> and so, you know, I, for people who haven't been watching it, they should, it's, it's a really interesting series covering the, the lead up to the impeachment of President Bill Clinton. And, and there's a character in there who is you. Are you Linda Tripp? Maybe. I'm Michael Isakoff. I cover Washington for Newsweek. I know who you are. I used to work in the West Wing. People were afraid of your calls. Really? What What's that like yeah. to see somebody playing you on <laughs> a drama? It's a bit. It's a bit surreal. It's a bit surreal. The actor Danny Jacobs did uh, call me. Um, you know, last year sometime. You know, when he was doing this, and you know, it's always a bit um, uneasy when. <laughs> you're told somebody's going to be playing you uh, on uh, in a TV show or a movie. So, you know, look, I'll be interested in hearing your thoughts, not just about me, but about the whole thing. But I go back and forth on this. I, some of, first of all, most immediately of the scenes with me, I'd say some of them are pretty accurate. In fact, they're lifted from the book I did mm-hmm. uncovering Clinton, you know, they're just lifted straight out of there and, and, and they use that. And, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. making a dime off this. They didn't option my book, but it's public domain. So there's nothing I can do about it. You know, uh, there, there are some other scenes that are just made up. There's a, a, a what's the, what are the made up scenes? Oh, the scene with my editor who would have been Ann McDaniel, sort of grilling me. What are you up to? How are we going to justify this? You know, blah, 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 to New York. Listen, I defend you to New York when they say you're on the sex beat. But, Michael, when you spend weeks chasing these women and then have nothing to show for it. This new one, it's really promising. You need something soon. Or I'm putting you on campaign finance. <laughs> you know, that never happened. She was keenly interested in what I was reported, reporting and wanted to know every last detail of it. So there was, you know, there wasn't at that point any internal dissension about what I was reporting. I mean, my overall take is I think the Linda Tripp character played by Sarah Paulson is pretty spot on. I mean, that's the Linda Tripp I remember and dealt with for many months. Was was she one of those sources that was relentlessly getting in touch with you once you had made contact with her? We... There were lots of communications. I mean, I, there, this is bef- this is pre-cell phones. So. Yeah, yeah. You know, she was. We, we, uh, we've, we've all dealt with whistleblowers who are, uh, or, or whistleblowers, or people who fancy themselves as whistleblowers. Who, yeah. uh, at first, you're extremely excited to hear from them, and then after a while, you don't ever stop hearing from them. Right. You know. Well, <laughs> there's a delicious scene that they didn't use for the show, which, you know, they should have, I think, because it was quite entertaining. I remember, I don't know if you saw the episode where Linda Tripp is over Monica's apartment and Monica shows Mm -hmm. her the blue dress, the famous Mm -hmm. blue dress for the first time. Is that so gross, right? How did that even get out there? I thought you said he never completed. Okay. Our first time together after the election, he was so excited to see me that he, you know, 
The next morning, Linda Tripp calls me, tells me about the blue dress, and then says, do you think I should take it, as in steal it? And I said, well, what would you do with it? She said, give it to you. And I said, well, what am I going to do with it? And she said, well, you can have it tested. And I thought about this for a moment. And, you know, aside from the fact that I was not eager to take custody of stolen property, I gently made the point that I had no access to Bill Clinton's DNA. So how could I possibly <laughs> test the alleged semen on the dress to determine that it came from Bill Clinton? And I just forgot about the whole, you know, I chalked her up as, you know, told her to move on, forget it. You know, there wasn't anything I could do about it. Little did I imagine that that would be the crucial piece of evidence that would force Bill Clinton to finally confess. There was also a scene I was curious about where Lucian Goldberg, Linda Tripp, and yourself are in a room, and I think it's actually in Jonah Goldberg's apartment, and I think in the Yes. The real scene, jo right. Jonah was there, but they kind of just wrote him out. I guess he was extraneous for their narrative. I thought they had him somewhere in the background. Maybe he's a, maybe I, he's somewhere I, in the yeah, background. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and Linda Tripp starts to play the tapes that right. she'd been recording. You've been taping her. Do you want to hear her voice? Why would I want to hear her voice? I don't even know her name. Her name is Monica Lewinsky. So there are a couple of things I was interested. What in. you said? No, I don't want to hear that. Right. That this is unethical. No, stop. <laughs> What's wrong? I can't listen to this. Taping without consent violates my journalistic principles. Oh, for God's sake. If that's true, you have stronger ethics than, stronger journalistic <laughs> ethics than I do. I, Although, I, 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 at, at a point, I'd be like, okay, I get it. Like, I don't need, I don't need to hear more than, you know, 30 seconds of this. I, like, I get yeah. it. But yeah. was that accurate? I probably or? did hear, I mean... Yeah, yeah, no, it's in my book, and it's not exactly the way they presented it. I'm not such a fuddy-duddy that I would have said, this is against my ethical values as a journalist. I just don't talk that way. Didn't sound um, exactly like you. Yeah, I mean, but what made me uneasy at the time was, and and just to sort of, you know, set the context here a little bit, I had known about the existence of a young intern who, according to Linda Tripp, was having this affair with Bill Clinton. At that point, I didn't know her name, and you know, which made it impossible to try to check anything related to what she's telling me because I didn't have enough information to do so. So I was mainly interested in that. And in the tapes, it was made clear to me that there was no smoking gun in this tape. Right. This is the first I'm learning that Linda Tripp is secretly taping Monica Lewinsky. And the way it was presented to me, it was, we want your advice on what Linda should say to Monica that would produce answers that could be a story, that would make a story in Newsweek. And that was kind of the thing that made me uneasy. They mm -hmm. were drawing me into the, this process of secretly taping her, which I'm learning about for the first time. And, you know, there's Lucianne and they're like, you know, plotting this thing. And 
it just made me feel they were trying to suck me into a process that seemed a bit sketchy. Right. 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 That, that makes you a player in that. Right. It made me a player and I didn't want to be a player. I wanted to report, but I didn't want to be a player. And, you know, that plus the fact that they'd already told me there was no smoking gun. So the idea of sitting there listening to, you know, these two, a tape of these two women talking, you know, when the purpose was to try to get me to be a part of it. So, yeah. And it's true. I left without listening to the tapes uh, and, and didn't ask to hear them until the very end when I learned that Ken Starr is involved and Ken Starr that the, the tape was the basis, a tape, a later tape, was the basis for Ken Starr to start doing what he did. At that point, it was evidence in a new, <laughs> extraordinary federal investigation of the president, and I damn well wanted to hear everything that was on that tape. And we did listen to the tape in the offices of Newsweek on the uh, night before Bill Clinton's uh, deposition in the Paula Jones case. What's striking in that scene and the way that they set the narrative up is at the end of it, you, at end of the meeting, you say, look, you don't have anything here. You don't have a cover-up. I, I don't work for the National Enquirer. I, I'm a serious reporter. I report on abuses of power. This is an abuse of power. There's no quid pro quo. He's not paying her off. He's not getting her a job to keep her quiet. And then the like very next scene, Linda Tripp is calling Monica saying, you should be getting a job. For yeah. your silence. Yeah. Look, he owes you a job. If it's not going to be the White House, he needs to find you one somewhere else. You need to take advantage of this. It seemed like she was, she was like the FBI and, and, a, and a group of like, you know, Michigan, you know, would-be terrorists who, who they, they like talk into like pretending to blow yeah. the bridge and then go in and arrest yeah. them. Like she was the FBI and that's in that situation. Like, <laughs> shouldn't, yeah. shouldn't you cover yeah. this up and get a job for it? And tell me about um, it. Yeah. Um, and remember, I mean, the reason very soon after that they had to be a cover-up is because Linda, through Lucianne, had informed the mm -hmm. Paula Jones lawyers that this would be potential material for their, for their lawsuit. So, yeah, I, I think that there's a sort of rough truth to that sequence of events, that I'm sure I did not lay it out in the way they, the show presents me laying out, but I'm also fairly confident at various junctures. And Linda Tripp was pretty sophisticated about these things as, as well, that what could make this a story, which I always thought was a story, it was, okay, the president has a girlfriend, a secret you know, affair with a White House, with a former White House intern, that's pretty, you know, eyebrow raising on its mm -hmm. face. And, you know, one could argue that, you know, it was newsworthy just in and of itself, assuming one could ever establish compelling evidence that it's true, right? Which I didn't at that point have. But, you know, it certainly occurred to me that it raised all sorts of potential questions I have to go back and check because I think the job thing had come up, you know, already mm -hmm. that, that, that the idea of getting her a job was, was, was on the table. Monica wanted out and I'm sure Linda had related to me. And I, and I remember thinking that the job thing, Clinton getting her a job was potentially problematic that could, you know, make this into a story. In fact, 
This is also in my book. In October, we learned that she's going for an interview with Bill Richardson, then the UN ambassador that Clinton had set up. Mm -hmm. And we thought that was a pretty important event, if it was true. And the interview was supposed to take place at the Watergate. And so we even arranged to stake out the Watergate. The the idea is Bill Richardson was supposed to meet her, I think, in a conference room. She lived in the Watergate, but he wasn't going to go to her apartment. It was going to go to some conference room, I believe, at the Watergate. And I had been on MSNBC a bit. People kind of knew my face. So we had my colleague, Danny Clydman, still my colleague today at at, at Yahoo, um, actually stake out the Watergate in the coffee shop for hours waiting to see whether Bill Richardson showed up. It turned out he did, but he showed up through a back door. So Clydman never got it. He drank like 15 cups of coffee and, you know, waited for hours. So the job thing was... They, they know, taped the door of the Watergate open so that they could so they could get in. Yeah, right. Yeah, the job thing moves it closer to a potential story, but you know, then when it be, it becomes part of the Paula Jones case, then it became even closer to a story. And then, of course, Ken Starr comes in, you know, and then it was an obvious blockbuster of a story, as much for Ken Starr's involvement as for Bill Clinton's, you know, mendacity and philandering. But if I just my my main critique is, and I think this is worth mentioning, is I got into this because back when I was at the Washington Post, I looked into the Paula Jones case. And I concluded, based on my reporting, that this was a credible allegation of um, sexual harassment and more. Mm. I mean, the, you know, the details of the Paula Jones case kind of got – they haven't really explained the context, and that's the, the proper one to look at this. I mean, Clinton sees – as governor of Arkansas, sees a woman who strikes his fancy and – deputizes his state trooper to go fetch her and bring her to a hotel room where he immediately, you know, begins to make sexual advances, exposes himself, and asks for a blowjob. I mean, today that sounds like Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. right? You know, at the time, well, Paula Jones is, 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 is you know, a, a trailer park trash and you can't believe her and she has a wild sexual past and therefore. But the fact is that there was multiple layers of corroboration for everything Paula Jones had said. You know, the state trooper <laughs> swore under oath that he, in fact, brought her to Clinton's hotel room. Her co-worker, Pam Blackard, who was there, witnessed this taking place and then talked to Paula after she came down. She, by the way, she's a state employee at the time on the job after she comes down and he, she describes Paula as shaken by what happened inside the hotel room. She goes to see a friend that day who was able to recount with a great deal of detail everything that Paula Jones told her that day. So there was real time corroboration for the event. And then you put on top of that, then I learned about Kathleen Willey, who goes to see Clinton in the White House as president about getting a job. And according to Kathleen Willey's account, Clinton, you know, turns it into a clumsy sexual tryst in which he, you know, slips his hand up her uh, dress, paws her, 
begins to kiss her and essentially makes unsolicited sexual advances while a woman has come to talk to him about getting a job at the White House. So you put those, you know, and I think that although they have somewhat sympathetic portraits in this show of Jones and Willie, it would have been a lot more helpful if they fully described and recounted what these women had described as what Clinton had done to them. Right. All of it is worse than anything Andrew Cuomo was accused publicly Um, of doing, it seems like. I mean, you know, the Willie thing, you know, there might be some analogies to Willie and the state trooper, but the Jones thing. And then, of course, you add on Juanita Broderick, who my former colleague at NBC News, Lisa Myers, was convinced was the most solid story of all. And there was plenty of corroboration for Juanita Broderick's account, too. So you had a guy. I mean, this was not about a single wayward affair (laughs) by a president having a midlife crisis who strayed and he's so sorry. And, you know, the emphasis on this being told through the lens of Monica, and I get it, you know, there's a reason for that. It was Monica that led to his impeachment. It was Monica. She's um, a producer on the... Yeah, she's a producer of the show. But to fully understand why all of this was of interest to me as a journalist, one has to look at the totality of the evidence here. And it suggests a much darker side of Bill Clinton than the public was aware of. Where the series has paused for now is they just executed uh, Operation Prom Night. We're waiting for Linda Tripp to confirm, but Prom Night's set to start at 1245. Prom Night? That's what we're calling it. Which is, you know, helpfully just reveals how disgusting, like, the entire thing was. That was what they called their operation to get Monica Lewinsky into a Ritz hotel room and try to flip her into cooperating as a witness right. against, against Clinton. Half hour with a girl in a hotel room. (laughs) Operation prom night. Where it ends, she has not flipped. She's saying, I want to talk to my mother. And I'm not doing anything until she gets here. Her mother gets on the train, comes down from New York. And then Ken Starr says something like, well, Michael Iskoff at Newsweek is going to have this in 48 hours in it's going to be the next issue. What is our timeline? Well, it's the coffin news because the whole story and they go to print in 48 hours. And President Clinton goes under oath first thing in the morning. Did Linda like immediately tip you off that it, it had all gone down successfully? How was that? How were you able to be so kind of in real time <laughs> kind of reporting on this? Well, I, um, I wrote about this in great detail for the book I did, Uncovering Clinton. But in the book... I had to leave out one crucial point, not point, but fact, which was my tipster as to who tipped me off to the fact that Starr had entered the case and was doing uh, and had authorized an FBI sting of the meeting of Monica and Linda at the Ritz Carlton that day. As it happens, The tipster has since been on my podcast, Skullduggery, and revealed himself as the person who tipped me off. You had Brett Kavanaugh on your podcast? I did not have Brett Kavanaugh (laughs) on my podcast. It was not Brett Kavanaugh, but it's somebody else you've read a lot of, George Conway. 
Oh, of course. George Conway, yeah, he's and, a character and, and in the... And Conway, who is a character in the thing. But, you know, and my reaction at the time was, Star? Are you fucking kidding me? How did Ken Starr get involved in this? But I remember, and it's vivid because it was like nearly knocked me off my chair and I was like white for a while. And because I'd known about the Lewinsky thing for about eight or nine months. I knew it had the potential to blow up, but I never quite saw how it could, you know, it would ever get out. How would I ever be able to prove what Linda Tripp was telling me? There were the steps I took, like the, you know, the Bill Richardson thing and other, other things we were able to establish, but no, nothing that gave me anywhere close to being able to write a story. But once I knew Star was involved, I knew this was big, this was real, and it was now a story. And, you know, as I said at the time, it's as much a Ken Starr story as it is a Bill Clinton story. It's like, how did Starr get involved? How did we get to a point? How did, how did this all unfold? So there was a pretty crazed several days there where we were crashing and I, you know, to try to put together a blockbuster exclusive for Newsweek magazine. And I thought we were ready to go. We confirmed that not only had Starr done this, but he had gone to the Justice Department and had gotten Justice Department approval to expand his mandate to conduct this investigation. It was official. You know, we had that. And uh, the editors of Newsweek, at the end of the day, balked and didn't want to publish. They wanted more work done on the story. That was their excuse, but you know, I just think it was too big for them to stick their neck out and publish a story that was going to shake the country. They just flinched, you think? They flinched. In, in, yeah. the, in the face of the power that they were going up against? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not aware of or, threats. Or they, that, didn't wanna, they didn't want to hurt Democrats? They didn't want I mean, to hurt Clinton? Yeah, they or like, didn't. But it was just to what if, what if this whole thing is, what if Monica, we, we had listened to the tape, so we knew that what Linda Tripp was saying you know, more or less accurately represented what Monica Lewinsky was telling her. You know, there was enough there to know that Linda Tripp wasn't a fantasist. She might have been shading things a bit, and she did at times, but she wasn't making stuff up. She was, you know, more or less accurately representing what Monica Lewinsky had told her. But, you know, the excuse is, what if Monica Lewinsky is a fantasist? What if she's, this is all in her mind. What if she's crazy? How do we know, right? You know, so I think that was what was cited as a reason to do more work, not to spike the story, but to do more work on the story. Of course, at that point, this is in the prehistoric age of internet journalism. If we didn't publish that for the issue coming out that Sunday, we weren't going to have another bite at the apple until the following Sunday. Newsweek had a website that was a dedicated AOL site that had only been used at that point to publish what was in the magazine. The idea of writing a story for the web was not anything in our ken. It just, you know, mm -hmm. th that idea had never come up. As it turned out, 
they held the story, various sources, you know, whether it was Lucienne or Conway or Coulter, somebody tips off Drudge and he publishes what he publishes late that Saturday night. By the way, everybody says he scooped, he had the story. Actually, he didn't have the story. If you go back and look at what Drudge wrote, he wrote about there were big screaming matches at Newsweek, which wasn't really true. There was vigorous debate, but there weren't screaming matches, about whether to publish a story about Clinton having an affair with an intern. The story wasn't <laughs> that Clinton had an affair with the intern. The story was that Starr was investigating <laughs> whether Clinton was covering up an affair with an intern in the Paula Jones case by using his good buddy Vernon Jordan to buy Monica's silence by getting her a job at Revlon. That was the story. And, you know, if you go look at what Drudge wrote, he didn't make any mention of Ken Starr at all. It just never came up. Now, a few days later, the Post does publish. And then after that, since we knew more than anybody else, and we had listened and had tra- and made a transcript of what was billed as the smoking gun tape, we decided for the first time ever, we were going to put out a story on the Newsweek AOL website. And we did it that Wednesday. And to make sure people saw it, we actually had to fax the story to newsrooms around Washington because how else would people know where to find a story? Anyway, another era in uh, American journalism. Amazing. Actually, I did have one, one other question just about like what it feels like in retrospect to have been part of this history because you know as i look at everything you did through there not only was each journalistic move defensible but this was this was impressive journalism this is working sources this is uncovering abuses of power this is it's sordid it's gross that this captivated the you know an entire political scene for several years uh but that's a separate question but i'm curious about how you feel about having been involved in it like, do you have it? Do you take pride in the work, or when you look back at, it, you're like, ugh. no, it, it, neither. I mean, ugh, that, that was... not, not, not. Ugh, I, you know, I have no problem mm-hmm. as I look back on what I did and how I did it, and it was a very unusual situation to be in, in which you know the ethical lines are extremely blurry and you know exactly how to handle these you could have journalism you know entire seminars <laughs> discussing like what's what are the ground rules in a situation like this what, what you know when do you publish how do you deal with it it definitely made me uneasy through the whole time that i was more of a player than i wanted to be i was more of a player because of the reporting i'd done there was the episode in which you know, after I do the Kathleen Willie story, which was several months earlier, you know, there was like, you know, Clinton is wants to know, you know, who's talking to Isakoff, you know, he's asking Monica who's saying that, you know, the idea that people were judging what they should say or how they should act based on what, what I was doing or what I might do or what I knew definitely made me uneasy because my I was affecting what these people were doing, right? And you never, as a journalist, really want to be in a situation like that. You want to publish your story and then have as much impact as you can have and have people react to it. But while in the course of reporting, you don't want 
to change the trajectory of events. And that's what made me uneasy. Now, of course, at the time, you know, all through that year, I got ferocious attacks from the Clinton world. And, you know, they were really nasty and really personal and really unpleasant. And, you know, that was not a a nice thing to go through. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're all big boys and girls and you got to take it. And, you know, I don't hear that sort of criticism as much today. I mean, this series, they didn't, you know, other than that phone call from the actor, you know, they didn't consult me. I wasn't a consultant on it. They lifted scenes from my book, but they didn't option my book. So I don't get anything out of it. But I think they have a, you know, a bit of a more balanced account of what was going on than the spin from the Clinton world at the time. Well, Michael, it's late where you are, um, but I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks. Thanks so much for being on. Sure. Anytime. That was Michael Isikoff, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. You should see what this girl is going through. If she's not going to talk, there's no story. What? Of course there is. You have no idea how inappropriate... Michael Isikoff? (laughs) You will go anywhere for a story, won't you? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.